Andrew Mortensen knows the issue all too well. Two of his friends killed themselves. So last August, the 29-year-old decided he was going to do something about it. He packed one change of clothes, some energy bars, and his cell phone. Then he hit the road. So I had extensive experience in, in this city. But the minute I roll up on my bicycle, literally, the minute I step off my bike on a street corner, I get approached with yeah, somebody had a knife. And so he asked for an equivalent of about 50 US dollars. And I, I had it, but I wasn't gonna about to pull it out because then it, the whole wad was going to go away. We tend to forget that three years ago, the economy seemed to be on the verge of collapse. Travel was severely restricted, socializing, everyday entertainment, that was all forbidden. Around this time last year, I had the following conversation with a good friend of mine from high school, Andrew Mortensen. As widespread panic of COVID took the world by storm, Andrew was one of the first people to witness the damage as he had been working for an airline at the time, which was brought to its knees as people stopped flying around the world. As the reality of the situation set in, Andrew kept his head held high and made the most out of the situation. At some point during the summer of 2020, I saw a post from Andrew on Instagram saying that he was 4,000 miles into a cycling trip across the United States and that he was now headed for South America. Thanks for having me and it's uh, good to reunite. I think I think that there's one like key fact that everyone should know before this is that I'm not a big bicyclist. So I've always been a runner and in fact, before the pandemic was uh, deathly of scared of wearing uh, spandex shorts. And so the pandemic changed a lot of that. Uh, first off, there was nobody out in the roads, so I could wear those spandex shorts without uh, being seen. Um, and then, of course, the safety aspect with no cars out there also created a, a great environment just for, for riding a bicycle. So um, what did I do? I, I rode my bike from the U.S. to, to Chile. And I did it in about eight months, uh, basically during the peak of COVID. And for our listeners here today, that's about 17,000 miles and uh, I believe 12 countries or so. Uh, a lot of COVID tests, a couple falls, a couple scares, but that's the crux of the, uh, the ride. And now that it's over, I'm uh, doing a little bit of biking, but a lot more running. All right. So it's it was kind of an impromptu decision, I guess, then, right? This all happened during COVID. So this was uh, quite a difficult time period to be doing such an adventure. Yeah, I mean, working in the airline industry, it was not not the best of times. And I was a, a financial analyst working at, you know, doing the, doing the numbers on how to price airline tickets, how to, uh, you know, choose what routes to fly most profitably. And suddenly, uh, I was sitting at my desk as the Asia Pacific analyst, and I saw uh, our numbers essentially dropped to negative, and this is worse than anything before, including recessions, 9-11, everything. So on a day in February, um, working at Willis Tower in Chicago, I, I looked out the window, it was cold and snowy, and I, I immediately knew that there was going to be uh, some issues down the road. And sure enough, come uh, you know May, they were threatening wide-scale layoffs and furloughs and, and everything. I actually had applied to business school before all this happened, and I got a call uh, in March that said, hey, you got into business school, and it's best call of my life, because I knew uh, right then that I had a safety raft sort of to um, to go out. I had, I had planned to leave anyway, um, and so this was just fortuitous timing. So I ended up taking one of the uh, voluntary leave packages because I was going to go back to school anyway, 
Um, and then it became pretty clear that those classes that I was so eager to take and meet uh, other people in were going to be virtual. Um, and so I decided it wasn't a very difficult decision, but to defer um, school for a year. And so here I was in, in June of 2020, uh, you know, sleeping in till 11.30 a.m., growing a beard and um, really not doing much of, much of anything. Yeah, living in my parents' basement, it was the, it was the you know, the figurative and literal unemployed person. I had to do something. So I started biking a little bit. I had a big list of things I was going to do in my sabbatical, including, uh, you know, go get my pilot's license, go work at a charity, go, um, you know, do all these these things I would never have time to do otherwise. And the first thing on that list was to go and bike uh, across the country. And so I got on my bike and I started east. So how did you end up in Washington? Or how, I guess, how did you kind of decide on the route? I know going kind of a coast to coast kind of trip, but like Nia Bay, I think is a very specific part of Washington. Like, how did you pick that spot specifically? Yeah. So, yeah. So I started in the Pacific Northwest, the very furthest Northwest corner of the lower 48. So that's how I decided uh, where to start. Oh, okay. um, the, the pipe dream was, hey, I'm going to ride my bike from you know, Alaska all the way to Argentina on the, the Pan American Highway. And um, COVID made that abundantly clear that both Argentina and Canada were not going to happen. And so at that point, I had to really, uh, you know, change my expectations. And I think during COVID, that was that was something a lot of us had to do is, you know, put dreams on hold, change plans, and just imagine things rather than actually doing them. And so um, my consolation was, hey, I'm going to start in the very farthest corner that I can, and I'm going to bike across the coast and, you know, touch both oceans. And that was how the dream started. That's cool. So I, I guess what, what I'm, I'm wondering is like, if you weren't always a, a cyclist, I, I'm in the same boat. Like I, I almost, now that you tell me that story, I actually didn't know the part about grad school. That was almost identical to like how my trip started in the sense of like having that safety net and everything. But given that you weren't a cyclist, like what made you want to do the Pan American or just like this, this kind of coast to coast trip. If, if it wasn't really like it, it's, you were never like a, a passionate cyclist. So where, how did this kind of come to be? Was it just, you wanted to push yourself or what? Or Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a good question. Cause like, you know, why did this, this dude who was always a runner doing marathons and everything, why did suddenly, you know, switch to the bike? Like, look, why didn't he run across? The right, right. Yeah. The, the bike to me, like <laughs> during COVID was this, it was this perfect, escape mobile, um, you know, locked inside and, and stuck. Suddenly I was out on this thing and I was cruising around the new towns and new neighborhoods. And it kind of restored some of that, that sense of exploration and progress and speed um, that I otherwise wouldn't be able to get if I was walking uh, or even driving. It's just perfect socially distant pandemic mobile. So um, I got <laughs> And it's the perfect, like, combination of speed because you're still going like quick where you can cover ground but you're not going so slow that you know you're not like you're taking in the same thing for six hours straight instead of like you can make some distance yeah yeah and it wasn't this you know protective shell that i was in driving a you know 60 miles an hour down the highway i was you know all all senses are engaged the winds at your face there's bugs there's smoke there's uh rabid dogs, you know, all these things that are, that are suddenly factors that you're really living in the, the environment, as I'm sure you can uh, attest to having ridden so far as well. Like, uh, it's just a more vivid, uh, 
experience. And so I felt like the, the bike was the best, best tool during the, the COVID pandemic. Okay. So then when you're planning the trip, it was originally from Mead Bay, Washington to Yorktown, Virginia, which was 4,400 miles. And it obviously transpired into something much larger. But when, it, when you were originally doing the trip, was it once you got to Yorktown that you realized you wanted to keep going? Or did you kind of know, you know, when you first started, you're like, I'm going to go farther, but I'm only going to say I'm going to go to Yorktown. So I don't like set the bar too high or like how was like, how, how did it go from that original trip to what you to essentially quadrupling those miles to to come up with the, the entire trip down to Patagonia? Yeah, you hit on a nerve for me, like a, a, a soft spot because it, it was a little bit of both. So, uh, you know, I, I marched into my family room in, in June and I said, I'm going to bike to Argentina. And, uh, you know, I told my friends and family and they're like, what are you, what? Like who? No, like who does that? <laughs> and so uh, I think in some sense, I, I wound back my uh, my expectations a little, but otherwise, like I also didn't want to, you know, set a peg so, so far and then miss it. Um, and so this has been something in, in my life that uh, I've always been working on is like, you know, self-confidence and assurance. And, and so, yeah, at the beginning of the trip, I didn't even know if I was going to make it across the country. So I only announced my trip when I got halfway uh, across the country, um, and I, I didn't—I truly didn't plan on going uh, all the way. I had this list of other things I wanted to do, but you know, as I got through like Virginia and uh, riding through uh, Illinois, Missouri, it's just like beautiful, untouched countryside, amazing people. I was in the best shape of my life. The weather in September was just unreal. Uh, and I, I was starting to get hooked. And so as I, as I rode into Yorktown, I, I, I was about 75% sure I was going to continue. And, uh, and so I, I did, I, I, I kept going and, and the same thing happened when I got down to Key West. I, I got to that little buoy that says, Hey, you're 90 miles from Havana. And I, <laughs> I was like, you know what, this is fun. Like I just downed three, uh, Dairy Queen blizzards. Like I'm a calorie machine. <laughs> the weather's perfect. I uh, this was just around Halloween. Uh, it was a, it was a good time, and so I decided again I'm gonna I'm gonna ride to, to at least to, to go to Mexico. And so each step of the way, I I put you know reasonable goals ahead of me, like gonna get to Mexico City. I'm gonna get to the you know Panama Canal. I'm gonna get through the Andes. Uh, I'm gonna get to the Atacama Desert. And before you knew it, I was uh, you know getting on a ferry and and getting on the the last gravel portion of the, the road that basically goes from Alaska down to uh, the tip of South America. Yeah, that's awesome. You can't really plan that far ahead. Like you can only plan maybe three days, I, for me anyway, like I could only plan really like three days in advance of like the actual route that I was going to go because I knew anything farther than that was, it, it was totally up in the air. So it's interesting how... For your trip, since you went so far, you went all the way down or across America, down America, oh, back, you know, cross back, and then down through Central and South America. That you you kind of had to to take it a bite at a time. You know, it's like it's this huge beast. Like you have to zoom all the way out on yeah. Google Maps to see how far you go. But if you think about it, it you just kind of broke it up into into little increments. To your point on on Google Maps, right? Um, I I never zoomed out on on my map, like. 
I was, I was, you know, zoomed in to just one, maybe two days riding, never, uh, zoomed out. And so, Oh yeah. You know, when, yeah, you'll freak yourself out. Yeah. You, you freak yourself out. It's, it's just impossible to plan logistically more than two, three days out. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so when, you know, when viewers here or when you, you know, show my, my route, it's, it's nonsensical. Like, why would you go all the way across down up around? It's because I was having a blast, like in the moment, in the day. And like, I was just looking one day at a time. I didn't really have this overarching master plan where I was going to go all the way to, you know, Chile. I was just enjoying the ride, setting small goals and each small goal eventually right. uh, led to this huge, uh, huge bike ride. That's awesome, man. And what was the what was the total number of days, or you you say how many months do you say? I, I started August, I want to say like twenty eighth, and I finished August twenty eighth, or or like, or I, I started August twenty fourth and then finished April twenty fourth. So it was like exactly whatever it was. It was exactly eight months that I I started. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Because and again, since you had that safety net of knowing like I have the time, not too much time. Like some people get totally lost in that trance and they become like permanent lifelong nomads, you know, and then they have like no ambition whatsoever, but having that enough of a, of a, of a cushion where you, it lets you have that freedom to be like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep pushing myself, see how far I can go. It's, it's a different dynamic. I've talked to other people on the show who um, I've done it for like, record breaking purpose, right? So for them, it was like, they had to, they had to keep a, a constant pace. Like they had to cover a certain amount of miles in order to like get to the record. But in, in your case, it's, it's more of like a, take it all in, really see the world for what it is. You're going at a good path. I mean, you were not going slow. You were doing century rides. Like I was, yeah. I was following along on your, on your map that you had and everything. Like you were doing, you were covering a lot of miles, but you still had enough of like a, grounding to really like meet the people see the sites take in the environment and of course you had your fair share of adversity i'm sure but it's 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 really uh it's really different it's really interesting to hear both perspectives you know it's not one's not better than the other they're just yeah they had this this runway of time and uh you know it, it at the end i realized that i was i was close enough to to make it back for my grandpa's 90th birthday um so this was April of, of 21 and, and when people were, were starting to come out and congregate. And so it was going to be this, this first uh, reunion of all of our family after, you know, being inside for almost a year and a half at that point. And so we, uh, you know, I, I finished on the, you know, 24th, I think of April and I was at my grandpa's birthday on the, the 28th and, uh, and it was the last time I saw my grandma alive. So it was like this, you know, it meant to be moment where, you know, I was, I was definitely done riding. Like I didn't have an itch to go further. I, uh, finished at the perfect time and I got to see my family and it was this great reunion and really joyous celebration of, of my grandpa's life. And then also my grandma who, uh, who then unfortunately passed away a few months later, but, uh, so really meaningful, full ending. That's beautiful, man. That I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, that's really, that's really powerful. <laughs> perfect time. Yeah, <laughs> of course, you know? It's funny how things work out like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're they're definitely uh, very proud. Okay, so I'll split it into kind of two parts here because you have the 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 U.S. trip, and then you have the South Central South America trip, and 
I can't even possibly comprehend the Central and South America, so I have plenty of questions about that. But in terms of the the first segment where you were going through the U.S., what, like, stood out to you most? Like, they call it the flyover states for a reason. So when you were going through, I guess you didn't go through Nebraska, or did you? Or did you go, you went higher? I yeah, I was, I was uh, let's see, Colorado, Kansas, um, Missouri, Illinois. Oh, oh, you went south, south, yeah. more south of that. Okay. Yeah. So, like, yeah, what was the, um, what was the experience going through that? Because, again, we're... For those out there, Andrew and I are from New Jersey, so the the Northeast is a whole different animal from the rest of the country. Different than the South, different than the West, different than the the Central. So, how how would you kind of explain or like describe the just like the the culture and how it's different from like the culture that that you and I grew up? I think the there there are two elements there that popped out to me, sort of on the the coast to coast and the U.S. portion. Um, the first is just practical. Like it was very low friction riding. Like you get on your bike, you go out and you just pedal. There is no, you know, borders. There's no currency changes. There's no language barrier. It's it's just pure bliss, pure riding. Uh, I think culturally riding through, you know, the heartland, there was, there were no big cities on my route. The, the, I went through Houston, uh, but I went through Houston, Missouri. Uh, yeah. you know, I went through China, I went through China, but China, Texas, um, so there's these, you know, really just tiny specks on the dot that you, you'll never see unless you zoom way in and, and the, the, the people there, I think, uh, it's just a, it's just a different pace. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's less like homogenized, like you might get in a city and, and people are very, uh, interesting and, and uh, engaging. I found, uh, most in, in the heartland, it's just really interesting, awesome people that, that I don't know I, that I would have met in the city. Sure, yeah. And when you were riding camping or couch surfing or hotels or like, what was the the lodging? Like, how did you how did you kind of get like logistically speaking? Yeah, in the in the U.S., I, I carried a tent. I, I really I only tent camped a few, you know, a handful of times. The rest I I did uh, a website called Warm Showers where cyclists yeah. will will host you. Um, and I did a little bit of couch surfing, stayed in hostels at churches. Um, and occasionally, if I really wanted to splurge, I'd do uh, a hotel. And so uh, I was, you know, far and few in between. But yeah, the, the U.S. is really like just pure riding. And it was so enjoyable to, to just get on the bike and ride as far as your legs could take you. Yeah. Cool. So how did you cross into Mexico? I went down to McAllen, Texas, and uh, I crossed into Reynosa, Mexico, and um, it was probably one of the most exhilarating days of my life because, uh, you know, I was crossing a border on my bicycle, and it wasn't just any border, but it was, you know, the U.S. to Mexico, and I, I, I realized that I should probably send some equipment home at that point. So I stopped at the, the post office and I, I, I ditched my tent and all my camping gear because from then on it was, um, you know, $10 a night hostels or oh, um, cheap, really cheap places to stay. So that was the first thing I did. And, um, as I approached the, the border, I realized that there, it wasn't going to be like a soft, um, 
sort of transition into Mexico, I, I looked across the river and I saw, um, you know, the Mexico that I had seen uh, from from traveling a fair amount in, in the country before I saw, um, you know, children playing stock, uh, street soccer and barefoot in dust clouds and um, a different kind of building that was a little bit uh, maybe less structurally sound and, you know, wires. And uh, so on the other side where I was, it was, you know, glistening donut shops and SUVs and, um, you know, lights that that worked and so i didn't realize it was it was going to be such a you know a knife edge cutover from uh, just crossing literally a, you know a couple hundred foot bridge right. and so uh compounding that was you know the state department warnings and a lot of anecdotal stories and uh you know news articles that were saying reynosa was ex- incredibly dangerous and uh you know it was advised not to not to cross. And so, uh, when I got there, you know, I, you know, my heart was racing and I was really nervous and I got to that, that sign that said, welcome to Mexico. And, um, I think I had somebody take my picture and was like the biggest smile of my life <laughs> because I was both, uh, excited, but also incredibly nervous and just like high, high energy. And so I wheeled up, uh, to, you know, present my passport and there was nobody at the counter. And so I kept walking and I was looking for, you know, where I'm supposed to have my bags, bags inspected or, you know, stamp. And I kept walking and walking and eventually I found myself on the, on the street, uh, in Mexico. And I, and I thought, you know, wait a second, where, like, where's the, you know, the checkpoint, the, the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the, the fee. And there was none of that. Like, the door was was wide open uh, if you wanted to to walk into Mexico. And so, uh, you know, realizing this, I, people probably were like, "What the heck?" They saw me turn back around with my bicycle and, and kind of walk back into the the uh, guard area and and ask to get you know officially recognized as entering the country yeah, yeah. because I didn't want to have any uh, you know any issues down the road. So, um, anyway, long rambling, uh, you know story but it was it was incredibly exciting it was scary um and it was the u.s and then it was promptly mexico you kind of had the butterflies and you're still just like oh man like you had a big smile on your face because like i'm here i'm finally in it but like survival now it's not like joyride anymore you know not that it ever was but like you know deep down yeah i remember when i was about to go into canada and everyone's telling me about the bears. They're like, oh, the bears are going to eat you. Bear, you know, like I, someone got eaten in Glacier the other week. I'm like, okay, that's not helping. But then you get there and you see your first bear and you're like, you know, you're all amped up. And then by the time you see your 50th bear, you're like, ah, whatever. So I'm sure it was yeah. kind of similar going to, when you're in Mexico and you see like most people would be afraid of. You're at, at a certain point, I'm sure you're just like, ah, whatever. Like these, these are nice people. They're, they're not they're mostly harmless. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, masked men and with rifles and a pickup truck, like, you know, first one I saw was, was awfully scary. And then I realized it it's just a way of life. And, yeah. um, you know, I could talk a little more about, you know, how I felt more broadly in Mexico, but needless to say, I think the, the feeling of fear lasted about, uh, tw- 20, maybe, maybe 12 hours because by the time <laughs> I was riding, 
then you know it was dusk when i arrived in reynosa but the following morning as soon as i started riding i saw you know smiling mothers and people offering me tortillas and and i realized that it was uh it was going to be a good time a really good time it's amazing how like human kindness and just like when you see groups of people, you can have some preconceived notions. But when you look at someone in the eyes, you see the world. When you see people who have nothing, most of them are, are just trying to help, you know, like there's no reason to be scared of most people, I think. In my yeah, I think as much as the, you know, the portrayals come out of, of folks having really complex, disparate uh, beliefs or of places being unsafe or dangerous. I think at the end of the day, like people just want to uh, have two things. It's like safety and, and have fun. And so I think yeah, yeah. a lot, you know, a lot of my trip, I, I realized that those two things were at top of mind for everybody, regardless of politic po politics or anything going on beyond that. And uh, it was really nice to, just to see that in person. Yeah. So, we're saying all this and then, but I, I believe there was actually an incident where that was not the case. Yeah. So, so I, you know, full uh, transparency, I, I, I got robbed um, when I was in Mexico City. It was, it was kind of odd because um, I'll just sidetrack a little. I, I was living in Dallas, uh, working for an airline um, based there for, for a number of years. And, you know, when, when you work at the airline, you can travel pretty easily. And, and Mexico City was a place that we went to a lot. Um, and I'm talking maybe more than 10, 15 times. And so I had extensive experience in, in this city, um, you know, knowing what places are, are generally safe, what, where to eat, what to see. Um, but the minute I roll up on my bicycle, literally, um, you know, frantically pedaling all day to try to get there before the sun went down, try to beat out a rainstorm. The minute I step off my bike on a street corner, uh, I get approached with, uh, yeah, somebody had a knife. And so he, he asked for an equivalent of about 50 us dollars. And I, I, I had it, but I wasn't going to about to pull it out because then it the whole wad was going to go away. And so <laughs> I, I countered with, um, and, and I speak uh, decent Spanish. So I countered with, okay, let's go to the, uh, the ATM and, and I'll get you your money. Of course, at which point I would have probably tried to yell or run or something. Um, and so he's like, all right, fine, let's, let's go to the ATM. And so he starts leading me to his ATM, which is like down a dark alley. And I'm like, no, 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 I want to go to my ATM. And so there was a little bit of a, a tussle and uh, he ripped the phone off of my, uh, my bike and took off. And so there were, there were two moments uh, on this trip where my bike chain jammed. Uh, one was going up a hill in Virginia and I fell. And the other was when I was trying to chase this, this guy with my phone. And so unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately my chase was unsuccessful and, uh, and efforts to recover the phone after contacting the police were also unsuccessful. So, oh, <laughs> um, you know, as robberies go, it was impactful because the phone is everything on these trips. Like it's your brains, it's your way to communicate. It's, uh, you're capturing everything. I had voice notes from my entire trip. <laughs> uh, all this stuff suddenly was in jeopardy. And so, um, it's, it's a hard thing to lose rather than, and you know, that guy wiping that thing clean too. Yeah. Yeah, he's not he's not saving any of those those pictures. So yeah, it was a bummer. Um but it, it was worrying because cause suddenly, you know, I thought about it and and he had told me, you know, my family's really struggling, I need this money, and he explained that uh, you know, this is something he had to do. And so 
I, I ultimately I felt I felt bad, and you know I hope the phone helped his family, and but I realized that like this is a really hard time in COVID for a lot of families that who are out of work, were struggling, and there were no tourists, and so suddenly um, a gringo rolls up on his bicycle, and and that's shocking in this time, and so I thought about the rest of my trip, and I I envision more more trouble ahead, and I got nervous about that, and so um, you know thankfully that was that was really the only incident. Um, and I, you know, learned to stay a little more vigilant and, uh, just start talking about to people ahead of time where I was going. But, uh, I realized it was, it was more, um, a matter of circumstance and this person needing something so bad, uh, rather than a theme that was going to permeate the rest of my trip. So ultimately I felt, I felt okay. So when you consider all of the central and South America portion of the trip, would you say Mexico was kind of like the most stressful or, or like, did, did you experience anything like what you experienced in Mexico anywhere else along the journey? Or was it, uh, was that kind of the pinnacle of, of fear? I think two things, um, struck fear <laughs> the rest of the way. Uh, the first was, uh, <clears throat> I'm coughing COVID. No, um, that was, that was always in the back of mind. Um, the, the, the real two things that I was worried about was crossing borders um, and cars. And, and so with crossing borders, like we're talking about there, you know, there's no harder period in human history to literally cross a line. Um, like there's no time in our, in our existence that it's been harder to cross a land border um, during those, those few months. And so um, I would, I would roll up to a border and not know if, if they'd even let me cross and, and the you know the regulations online were were very spelled out for air travelers. It said you know this is what you have to do if you're arriving by air, um, but less clear was what you needed to do if you're arriving by land. And so often I would I would show up, I'd present myself, I'd request a cross, um, and sometimes they'd say yeah no problem. Sometimes they'd say hey go get a COVID test. Um, and and again this was like it was just not anywhere. Um, it was so new and so fresh that. Um, countries just didn't publish it uh, anywhere on the website, even on the U.S. Embassy website. Like there was no info on land border crossings, uh, only for if you're arriving by air. And so, yeah, so it presented a lot of trouble. So sometimes they'd say, no, you, you know, you can't cross. And and I'd, I'd request uh, permission from the embassy. I'd, I'd try and cajole them as much as I could at the border with, you know, hey, this is a big trip. Look how far I've gone. You don't want to be the guy that or the gal who, who you know, stops this big trip. Like, come on. Um, but you know, eventually, you know, all paths led to a no. And so in those instances, I would actually, uh, I would be like, okay, fine. I can't cross, but can I leave my bike here for like three days? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. Just, you know, throw it in the, in the back room, whatever. So I'd, I'd leave my bike. I'd go get on a bus to the nearest, uh, airport that was still in the same country. I would fly into the, the next country abiding by all of the COVID regulations, I would test, I would quarantine, whatever I had to do. And I would take a bus back to the border, get on my bicycle, for, which was being stored in the border house and then continue on. So I never missed a, a single inch on that, the whole trip. And so that was definitely one one fear to, to answer the question is, is the border. So that was how I had to get around a few of them. Uh, and so when I finally got to Chile, it was like this relief because I just had this huge stretch of road where I could just ride now without 
you know, border crossing and all this stuff. And so uh, that was definitely one. The other was the cars. And unfortunately, when I was in Peru, uh, you know, middle of nowhere in the in the desert, uh, a truck clipped me from behind and sent me flying off the bike and scraped me up a good amount. And so I'm here still clipped in. I used clipped in shoes, like laying sideways on the pavement, just thinking to myself, what in the hell am I doing? Like, it just hit me in that moment. Like, I am in the middle of this, I think it's called the Sashura Desert in Peru. Like, nobody's around, and I'm riding my bicycle to Chile. And so this, the whole, like, the whole, like, just magnitude of the trip landed uh, with me when I fell there. And so, uh, you know, I got back up, and uh, the, the truck driver, thankfully, he stopped and instead of apologizing, came over and yelled at me for riding a bike in the <laughs> middle of the desert. And uh, so that wasn't much, much use. And, you know, I'm not going to like report the guy because it's just not going right. to do anything. Like he, he's got a family. Um, I'm fine. We all, you know, part ways yeah. and move on. And so, uh, but for me at that point, it, it kind of ruined this pact that I had with cars for almost six and a half months at that point. It was like, I'm riding and I'm facing forward and I trust that this car that's coming within, you know, inches or feet of me is not going to hit me because they're going to see me. And suddenly that was turned right. upside down. And so, uh, I installed an extra mirror on my bike. I was, you know, frantically <laughs> looking over my shoulder at every single car that passed for, for so many weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I even at some points when the road got really narrow and there was no shoulder, I would, uh, I would pay like a, a taxi driver who was kind of out of work for from COVID. I would pay him a couple bucks to, you know, trail me for a few hours just to make sure that I had, you know, eyes on, on the back for the whole time. So, um, anyway, long winded answer, but two, really two fears that, that kind of permeated the rest of the trip. Okay. So then to your first point about the, the border crossings, I, I could be wrong, but isn't there's a spot north of Colombia that you're not able to bike through? And I, I'm blanking on the name right now. Yeah, it's, it's called the Darien Gap. And that's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only break in the Pan American Highway all the way from the northern tip of Alaska to Argentina. And so um, it's, it's, you know, you can cross it in a number of ways. You can uh, there's no road. I guess like, what is it? It's, it's a basically a dense jungle where it's known for having cartel activity and a lot of, um, migrants use it who are crossing via land. Um, they'll, they'll hike through and, and, uh, it's got a reputation for, for being fairly dangerous, but, um, you know, as reputations go, we, we know that like a lot of those reputations were dispelled as I, as I rode on my bike. So I can't tell you how it is there. Um, all I know is that if I was going to cross on land, it would have taken, uh, about two weeks to do it. And that was two weeks oh, wow. that, uh, you know, I didn't have. And, um, most people who are, were doing the trip either go by boat or take an airplane. And so, sure. uh, I just decided to pack up my bike and hop on an airplane. So that was the only really the break in the trip. And, uh, yeah, I was like, there's really no other way to, to go about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But you, you did end up going into Colombia, though, right? Just on the other side of the Darien Gap? Yeah, and it's ironic because the plane actually takes you. I took it to Cartagena, Colombia, and that it takes it takes you farther than if you had just crossed sort of by land. So I ended up having to 
actually ride a few extra days just to uh, compensate for that. Oh, man. But yeah, so I, I started in the north side of Columbia and then went south from there. Went down the west side. Yeah. Okay. And what is like the most notable cultural difference between South American culture and then like Central American, not just Mexico, but like generally speaking? Because I know they're all some derivative of Spanish or Spanish culture, but they're all uniquely different. So like, what's, what was that? Like? I, I felt like South America was way more uh, organized in the sense that like there were, you know, cars that were, had emission standards. There were traffic safety laws. There were, um, you know, stronger rule of law and trust in institutions, um, better like governance, policing, less corruption, um, and, you know, all, the, all these things I'm experiencing firsthand um, through the trip in each of these countries that I'm going through. Um, but I felt like when I arrived in Colombia, it was it was on a whole nother level. It was, everything was really organized um, and it got progressively more so until I got to Chile where uh, it felt like I was honestly, you know, but pedaling back in the U.S. It was, it was, hmm. you know, I know we do, we don't like to use first world, second world, but it was, it was definitely uh, just as good um infrastructure wise and uh safety wise as, okay. as the u.s oh, oh sweet i guess columbia wasn't like that i don't know 50 years ago or something like that but. yeah i think most notably the the culinary tastes changed so it went from you know tacos to um you know empanadas like central south american empanadas uh. to uh arepas and then, uh, as I got into Chile, back into uh, empanada territory, except they use uh, flour <laughs> coatings rather than fried. So, yeah, you could trace the, the whole journey in, in culinary tastes. <laughs> so, I, I guess, like, if you look at your trip, which was very sizable, <laughs> 17,000 miles is no, you know, stroll in the park here. But uh, there are other people who have done the Pan American Trail. So what would you say kind of makes your trip different than than other people who've gone on long trips like that? I think there's two reasons. Uh, the first is just the, the style that I did it in. So I rode a, you know, ultralight setup, um, really just, you know, you know, to give you an example, I, I had a half of a toothbrush and a little tube of toothpaste and, and <laughs> one, you know, one single pair of underwear that I used on the trip. And so, you know, my life had... Uh, on wheels was incredibly light. And, um, I think the folks that I've seen most often do it are carrying a few bags. They've got, uh, you know, a couple changes of clothes or, uh, you know, carrying extra food. I, I don't know. Um, but I did it, you know, in a way that was really lightweight and really fast. And so instead of, um, you know, 60, 70 miles a day, I was, I was riding on average 101 miles per day. And so, that was on average, yeah, hundred, so over hundred miles a day. So really, just pushing, loving the the fitness element of it, and and seeing progress, like knowing that, um, you know, seeing the landscape change, I'm seeing myself move on the map. That was really rewarding for me. I'm um, going, going uh, fast, and and I I reason that you know I would see the you know sort of this world as one plane on the on the ground, and then I would I would always have time to go back and. Um, and visit uh, places that I really like because, you know, I had a year to do it and I didn't have time to 
to really stop uh, for days or weeks on end and, and dig into a place. So I've got places I want to go back to. Um, so that was really the first, the, the second way it was different. It was, it was during a pandemic and it was the, the best time to ride a bike. And it was also the worst, the best time because roads were empty. Like I rode into Panama city and there was not a single car on the road. Um, I, I was riding through a, a city of a few million people and I was the only person out, out on the road. Uh, and, and this happened numerous, uh, times down the road in Chile and Colombia, like just wide open, nobody out. So really great time to ride a bike. It was also the worst time because I was doing it alone. And, you know, you see, um, even my friends who are, who are on the trail now, uh, they're meeting people along the way who are going North, who are going South. They're riding with groups of, uh, of people along the way. Um, you know, museums are open or social gatherings are happening and it's a, it's a more social connected experience. Uh, I did it all by myself, all by myself essentially, uh, out on the road there. So a lot of differences, but both good and bad. Well, Hey, that that's less people slowing you down, I guess is one way to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, I ride a little faster too. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. But the social part is, is interesting because it is, it's one of those things you don't think you need. And then you're like, oh, I could definitely go for a beer with someone, you know? Yeah. I'm sure as you, you know, experience on the, the Transamerica portion or when you're riding, you see other cyclists who are going the opposite way or going the same way and you trade knowledge about the route. Yeah, like, hey, yeah, yeah. watch out for this or, or did you hear about this? And it's like this fun gossip train that, that happens. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> as soon as you hop off, like when I, when I ride one again to Mexico, it's like, well, it's just me. So yeah, yeah, here yeah. I am. <laughs> Well, that's, that's wild, man. So dialing it back to the reasons for this whole crazy journey, right? So it started off as this 4,400 mile trip and he kept pushing the envelope and there was a, a fundraiser that it didn't inspire the trip, but it was a, it was a, um, a coincidental byproduct, I guess, of you deciding to go on this journey. I'm assuming you felt like this was a great cause that, that, would benefit from this trip. So um, just kind of explain that, explain what the, uh, the impetus was for, I believe it's called the Trevor project, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, it was really the, you know, the accelerant on the, the spark or the fire that, uh, that had to, to go and, and get out and explore during COVID. It was like kind of alluded to, you know, bike is just great outlet for, for being outdoors. And, you know, as I, as I rode uh, along, you know, I was coming out of my parents' basement. I was unemployed. Uh, yeah, I just got dumped. Um, and and wor- you know, the worst I think was that I uh, I lost two friends to uh, to suicide in in the year and a half prior. And so you know, being stuck indoors and and suddenly now riding the bike was was a coping mechanism and a way to really think about um, you know my life, their life. And as I rode across the country, I, I realized that, you know, my, my, um, experience and like trouble during COVID was, wasn't really unique. Like a lot of people were struggling, um, you know, with, with jobs, with, um, you know, losing loved ones. And, uh, this was especially acute in the LGBTQ community. I heard stories from people who had, uh, you know, struggling to come out now that they were stuck indoors who had, again, lost loved ones, like all. And so I decided that, you know, I was climbing up. It was a day in Colorado. I was climbing up 
uh, Hoosier Pass, and uh, just about over the top at eleven thousand feet. And I said, you know what, I'm I'm going to do this for uh, for something that's really meaningful for me and for all these people I've met on the route so far. And so then I decided that I would uh, I would ride for the Trevor Project. So uh, that they're an LGBTQ youth uh, suicide prevention nonprofit, and they operate basically a 24 seven uh, crisis hotline for folks who are in need, you need to call, they need to text They're they're there. And so suddenly, you know, the mileage I was riding was, wasn't about just seeing the, uh, you know, the scenery about meeting people. It was suddenly about, you know, helping this organization to support people who are in crisis. And it, it meant a lot, a lot more at that point. And so the, the money that you raised, uh, which I believe it was a dollar per mile. That was the initial idea. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that money that was raised goes towards, um, like training the counselors and like just providing like high quality care and that, and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they were really trying to, uh, expand their, uh, I believe like capacity during overnight hours. So that, that money, um, you know, I believe helped them to, you know, staff out more during overnight hours. And, you know, it's just a small piece of the, um, the bigger puzzle there as they expand and help more people. But, um, I'm sure every, every site helps. Sure. Yeah, of course. And, and it's, um, it is interesting. You kind of, you, you brought up an interesting point where like you go through all this stuff on the bike trip, right? Like the, you get hit by the truck, you get mugged, like all these things that you at the time seem like the worst thing in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you realize like once it's all over and you, and you finish what you set out to do, like, there's really nothing that's going to be as difficult as what you just endeavored. At the end of the day, like, I don't remember like the pain in my legs going up a steep mountain pass. I don't remember like, you know, my elbow and my arm feeling like it was broken after getting hit. You know, all these things, like they just, they're kind of just gone. Um, but what I do remember is like the amazing sense of freedom and like the, the satisfaction of moving every day and like just the open air and, and feeling like I was doing something. And so um, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways from, from that trip is just like, you know, it gets better and, and, and ultimately, you know, you're going to remember the good um, maybe more than, than the bad if you set out to, to do it. Do you have any, do you have any closing, closing thoughts, closing remarks? Yeah. I think like, when you when you take off on a bicycle or when you you embark on any really adventure like just stay zoomed in on your map and focus on <laughs> you know focus on what you can do in a day and and just embrace the day um and worry about tomorrow tomorrow and uh that would probably be the biggest piece of advice i could i could impart and uh and have fun awesome and then doesn't just apply to bikes too. It applies to everything, everything else in your, in your life. Everything. Awesome, Andrew. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Um, Awesome hearing about your story, the Patagonia story. Really appreciate your time. So thanks for coming on. Definitely. Thanks for, for having me, John. And uh, yeah, it's been a blast.